Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We'll rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watch Talent for the Game. Thank you for joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. Talent for the Game tells the story of professional baseball scout Virgil Sweet, played by Edward James Olmos. The California Angels were just sold to a new owner, putting Virgil's job in jeopardy. His only chance at salvation is to find the perfect phenom prospect, so it's time to hit the road while he still can. Screenplay by David Himmelstein, Thomas Michael Donnelly, and Larry Ferguson, directed by Robert M. Young and released on April 26, 1991. So, the weekly question, have you seen Talent for the Game before? No, I have not. No, me either. I've seen quite a few baseball movies. Yes. This one never comes up in the discussion of the best baseball movies of all time. No, even though I've read a couple reviews and some people have said this is a very good baseball movie disagree (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah hard disagree uh one it's yeah baseball is like front and center in terms of like subject matter but it's not it's not really a baseball movie i don't know it's as much a baseball movie as, like, M.A.S.H. is a football movie. Have you seen M.A.S.H., the original theatrical thing? No. Like, the last act of that entire movie is just, like, them playing football. And, like, the last act of this is where the actual baseball happens. Okay. Whereas, like, in the... I don't know. What, like, Friday it's, Night Lights? I've never seen that. Okay, Mitchell, I've so seen I, that. <laughs> so that's tough for me to say. But, but I'm just saying, like... The first two thirds are less about baseball. Baseball is like the um, the plot driving device, but it's supposed to be about the relationships and his like struggles and job and stuff. But mm-hmm. like the actual baseball stuff happens here. There's a okay better analogy possibly. There's just as much, if not maybe even a little less, baseball in this than there was in Naked Gun One. Okay. So that that's my point. It's not so much a baseball movie just because of like how little actual baseball there is. And I know that there's other baseball movies that don't have a whole lot of actual game playing. Like Field of Dreams doesn't have tons and tons of baseball. Burl, you know, Bull Durham doesn't focus, you know, two hours on the game itself. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's... They talk about it a lot, but it's such empty platitude nonsense it's like you you could have been anything like baseball is just like a substitute for whatever it could have been a flower salesman and it would have been the exact same thing um i don't know did you dive into those reviews to find out why they liked it so much or is it just no because i don't like nostalgia thing i just saw i didn't i skimmed through them because you know how certain reviews 
you know, reveal things. Sure. So I didn't, I didn't go into them. Okay, so you, as much. you read those before we watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I didn't bother to read them after. Yeah. I I just saw a couple, and it was just saying, you know, this is a like a sleeper hit or whatever. It's a sleeper. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was bored most of the time. I don't know about you. It's like a very... I just am very surprised that this was a theater movie because this is very much a Lifetime Hallmark movie. Yes. Yeah, it has all the vibes of a TV movie. Yeah. But with better production. So sort of like Sleeping with the Enemy in that regard and that like the subject matter and some of the dialogue is just very empty and shallow um but this does not break away from that the way sleeping with the enemy kind of does um yeah everything that you could imagine would happen in this movie like when you're introduced to the characters and you find out that they have a you know that he has a love interest in the form of some i forget okay so Virgil's love interest is Bobby Henderson, who is played by Lorraine Bracco, who is has some sort of position in the California Angels front office, but I don't remember what. She works for the team as well. That's yeah. all you know. Mm-hmm. So they're together and expect the normal ups and downs, I guess. I don't know. Like it, Me explaining the summary should basically let you know where the plot's going to go. Of course, he's going to find the prospect. You know, of course he's going to save his job and like, you know, all those little fake ass twists that you would expect to see are are here. Mm -hmm. Um, And along the way, we get like wonderful dialogue, like, let it go, son, let it go. When he's talking to these pitchers trying to. Yeah, he's talking to himself. Yeah, he's mumbling to himself at these pictures pictures he's trying to recruit. Do it again, kid. Yeah, you got it. Do it again. But it's. It's it's like weirdly shot because it's just a close up of his face and it's very creepy, and and he's I, staring like constantly right into the camera. So imagine a man with a mask on, <laughs> a catcher's mask, a catcher's yeah. mask, staring straight into the camera, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. kid, yeah, buddy, let it go." It's just Don't very back, creepy, son. and that's kind of how it starts. Yes. Well, and there's the way too it's... many scenes like that. Too. Yeah. Uh, and, but the way it starts, he works in a mine. He's no, work... he doesn't work in a mine. He's recruiting somebody who works in the mine. Oh, he's rec- Oh, okay. I yeah. thought he was working in the no. mine with these people. Yeah, like the very first shot, he has like the miner's gear on. Yeah. And he's like talking with people that it makes it seem like he's known them for a long time. But no, he's just going down in the shaft to because that was the recruit. only way to meet that prospect because that guy couldn't in get the time mine. off. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I thought they. <laughs> I thought they all worked in the mine, and they. He was like, "Oh, my coworker is really good at baseball." <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was sort of like yeah, I thought that was like before he became a scout type of thing at first yeah. too. And no, then, I thought this no, was, was like just... his quote day job, like he did scouting oh. on the side. Yeah, I can see how you could get that. Okay, well then but, I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it's. I didn't know scouting was his full time thing. It was his full time thing. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, that was such a weird start, like to head down the mine shaft. It's like I don't know. To play ball. It's like my, in a mine. Yeah. It's like dark. <laughs> my bloody and... ba- Valentine. Yeah. I, the, <laughs> with baseball. Yeah, that's why the very beginning is like the beginning of my bloody Valentine. If anyone's seen that movie. And then you have like the baseballs being thrown right at the camera as if it's like a three D effect, like in that you know the remake of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he's, like, giving you those creepy stares. Mm-hmm. That giant Doug Henning mustache of his. Um, yeah, it, so that's... And I thought that that was going to be the Phenom, but it's not. He's not ready, right? You can't yeah, be introduced to the Phenom yeah. that early. And they even have a scene, like, a little bit after that where he's meeting with up, meeting up with all kinds of other scouts at this game, and they're talking about how the concept of a phenom is a myth, you know, like this this kid who's so good at baseball, he doesn't need any sort of training, he's never been professionally coached or whatever, and he's just a natural, and he's going to be the best ever. Um, so, of course that means he's going to find one, because he's saying it's a myth, and, you know, talking about all this stuff. But all of these... All of these sequences with dialogue is the most basic stuff you've ever heard. Like, hey, do I have what it takes? Everybody needs a dream. Is my kid really the best? It's like, all I know is baseball. It's all I've ever done my whole entire life. I just recited about a third of the movie's dialogue because they just repeat those types of phrases over and over again. Yeah, and then you have Edward James almost going, yeah. Yes, just staring at you. (laughs) Again, sort of going back to like Sleeping with the Enemy, like, he is like the Patrick Bergen, you know, like staring at the it's camera with that staring. mustache. And he's like, you know, creepily looking at you, except no, he's the good guy. <laughs> you know, this Edward James almost is the good guy. I don't know, he's, he's very dry. I don't know. He has like, he whispers a lot too. Like not, not just to himself, but like when he's talking just to other characters, he has sort of like a low tone. He's like, well, I don't know everything I've I thought that about was just baseball. Him. Yeah, you mean like him as an actor, as yeah. a person? Yeah. That's how he is naturally? I don't know. Maybe I haven't seen enough of his stuff. Um, maybe that's just his style of acting, but it's just... I don't know. It's like he was trying to be deeper than what the character really was. And then in between all this stuff, we have the relationship between him and Bobby. And I never really got a good grasp of what the hell was going on with those two. <laughs> did you like uh i don't know like <laughs> there was never like any major troubles between them right they, it's just like it's he was worried he about marrying her because he didn't make enough money yeah but... and she she's like the breadwinner of this coupling yeah <laughs> um yeah and then they're always kind of like joking around and you know teasing each other are. and <laughs> I guess those are jokes. Well, in the beginning where he's, you know... Oh, when he comes home. When he comes home, he's been out, I don't know how long, scouting. I don't know how Uh long he was out. He comes back and he's trying to, like, catch her or, like, sneak up on her, but can't find her. And then she finds him and pours water over his head and they're laughing. And then that's the end of that scene. Yeah. And then it goes on to, like, him coming into the stadium where she works in her office. Mm-hmm. And it just... And then they go on, like, a like a road trip together to scout together. Yeah. Yeah. 
because yeah, that, that's his chance to save his job is to find one prospect before yeah, X amount the, of time. Yeah, they some arbitrary. The, the team is gonna be bought out by someone else. Out by this billionaire, Gil, Gil Lawrence, Lawrence. Yeah, played by Terry Kinney, best known for well, by me, best known uh, in in Oz as McManus. Yeah. So yeah, basically the new owner doesn't like the old scouting system where people physically go and look for players because it's antiquated and it costs a lot of money. Just use reports and go with like whatever. Um, and so yeah, Virgil's going to be out of a job unless he can come up with something that produces because the California Angels are in the toilet in terms of, you know, the standings mm-hmm. and have been for a while so clearly what he's finding isn't doing the trick so maybe he should have been fired because he wasn't good at his job uh, is, is the thinking there um, so yeah they go on this road trip together uh, Bobby and, and Virgil not Gil um, and maybe maybe Gil has a point because he's going to these weird random locations like mine shafts and stuff just from like hearsay like hey i know this guy who's really good at baseball you should check him out yeah and like catch three pitches and then make a decision Mm -hmm. um i don't know go to like you know actual leagues like go to a college yeah go to colleges and high high schools yeah instead you're just going to see some random dude that a friend of you a friend of a friend told you might be good like that's not an efficient use of your time um but, you know, that's how they have to structure the story. And so, you know, that he has, like, situations where he's catching pitches in between barns and stuff because he's out of time. Like, you know, I have to see this kid right now. And so, like, they're both yeah, in, like, they're opposing like, barns in this random field. Yeah, and let's he's throwing set up the ball a place off. where you can throw a ball at me. And it's getting wet in the rain that are set up between the two buildings where, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> let it go, son. Let it go. But yeah, they're on this road trip, and the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I did, they, they didn't say where they were for a really long time, because I was trying to figure out where they were. No, it was someplace with some sort of field of something. I mean, it's I, I didn't wheat. Really rec- yeah, I guess. It, it turns out to be Idaho, but I thought it was like Northern California area. Oh, okay. So they went all... Oh yeah, that's right, they did say Idaho, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, they went all the way there... I don't know what they were planning to go see. I don't remember that Yeah, they were on their way somewhere, but their car breaks down. And then this is so weird. This scene was weird where they were like, oh, well, let's start dancing. Yeah. So, yeah, the car breaks down. They can't fix it because they don't have the part. And so they're like, well, we could start walking to, you know, the nearest town. And then Virgil's like, or we could dance. And then they just start fucking dancing to music that appears out of nowhere. Yeah, that's what I was like. And it goes on is for it a from, while. Is that music coming from the car, or are they just dancing to dance? I don't know. I would imagine the car would be off. Right. Because like it's, it's overheating, so you don't want to keep it on. broken down. And, but then after they're dancing, they're, they're seen just sitting on the highway or whatever, the stretch of road looking bored and they're like okay let's finally just yeah now let's actually walk walking to the nearest town (laughs) yeah i mean the nearest town did not look close it looked like you had to walk at least six to ten miles or something i don't know okay so 
I want to go back to the dancing though before we get to that part because like I feel like that that was like that in the whole water dumping on the head thing were probably like supposed to be glimpses of this relationship mm-hmm. and that there's a whole bunch of history there. They're like, let's we're just, just have told. a good time. Like, we're not let in on like, that Like, we at like all. to goof around and make light of everything. I guess so. I feel like it should, I don't know. It should have had more meaning than that. It should, I don't know. It, I didn't felt, I didn't feel like I was let into their relationship. I felt like I was still like this out, like if, if I was driving on the highway and saw these randos dancing. Yeah, I wouldn't be like, hey, you guys need help. I would have the exact same feeling as what I just saw. 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah. It had the exact same impact. I didn't have any additional, like, attachment to them. I'm like, oh, they're so cute and funny, aren't they? It's like, like, what the fuck is happening? Go get help. No, they want (laughs) to (laughs) dance. So, yeah, cut to them actually finally walking. And they're still, based off of the camera work, like look like they're in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But they hear the sounds of baseball. (laughs) And so they walk, like, three steps and find an entire town. Yeah, that it, was like right there. The camera pans out, makes, and you're in the middle of like a field. It makes no functional sense. And then all sense. of a sudden, it's like, oh, do you hear that? It's baseball. And guess who's there? It's the phenom, uh, Sammy Bodine. It looks like he's in his mid thirties. Right, he's supposed to be. <laughs> I don't know how uh, old he's. Supposed well, to they be. call him the, a kid, but well, he calls I, everyone kid. Though. Yeah, he I know. Calls everyone but, kid and son. I don't know. He's probably like supposed to be early twenties. That's my guess. Yeah, he's probably supposed to be early twenties, but you know, you know how people always look older. Right. In he looks movies. about thirty-three or something. Yeah, he looks. He definitely looks like mid-thirties to me. Uh, but boy, he can pitch so hard. He's gonna hurt your hand in the glove. Right, and, and then that's, <laughs> that's when Edward James Olmo or Virgil, I should just say. It's just like, yeah, give it to me. Like, yeah. the way he's... <laughs> Again, yes. He's just the... He's <laughs> whispering these things. And then he's like, Are he's you like, I can back take on it. me, son? Yeah, he's like, I can take it. I just give it to it. me. <laughs> just so dumb. Like, we, we should just isolate him whispering. <laughs> and oh, then yeah. we'll ask, is this from a baseball movie or a porn? <laughs> so, yeah. There's so many things that just, like, happen. And then they're just gone right because he has to then convince his parents that it's okay for him to be part of his professional baseball team and try out Mm -hmm. because his dad's a reverend and he expects his son to take over the church and for some reason he can't do both he couldn't take over the church after his baseball career is over he would have to do it like i don't know now because obviously this kid is you know 40 years old (laughs) you know so i mean so there's like this weird like thing, but that's at like a two minute sequence. And then it's like, well, this kid's really good at baseball. And the mom's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then it's like, are you on sure your way that he's good? Like, yeah. And then they're like, okay, you can go on ahead with this stranger. Yeah. Well, and then meanwhile, their car is being fixed and the car is fixed. Yeah. Which we don't hear <laughs> by anything the, about. By his family, I think, or yeah. something. Michael J. Fox should have gone to that town instead in Doc Hollywood. Because right, this car got fixed right away. Overnight. Yeah. And then it looked like the same type of town too. Yeah, it did. I was telling, yeah, I was joking with you. Like they should, like there should just be like one 1991 cinematic universe where all these towns are in, inter- you know, 
they intertwine. Yeah, and like you, you just see like Michael J. Fox with the pig like walking down the street. Yeah. <laughs> just as an extra in this movie, he's just there walking the pig. With his pig, yeah. Um, what if they write in? So yeah, I mean, all kinds of like little stupid stuff happen, and it's just blips on the radar, like fake intrigue or fake conflict that resolve itself and and just never comes up again. And I feel like that's how. You know, this movie is basically just like a a series of small sequences that just happen to be connected. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it it just doesn't feel like a cohesive thing. It just feels like they're bouncing from one thing to another and it doesn't have an actual flow to it. Um, So yeah, then he goes to the team. Uh, Oh, actually before that. They have that Mr. Miyagi mo- moment where he's like training the kid, where he's for like, like a like a day. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. yeah. That's the thing. Like, he sees like five pitches from this kid. He's like, "You are ready for the majors." Yeah, kid. like let's... you are ready to be part of this organization. Yeah, um, let's prepare or let's uh, practice for one day. Yeah, and then you know he's quizzing him on what you do if. Yeah. So what would you do so. if Daryl Strawberry were up to bat and yeah. this is the situation, this is the count, runners on, whatever. How would you pitch them and why? And the kid's giving perfect answers, I guess. I don't have enough baseball knowledge to yeah, really Yeah, uh, I was say. wondering if you would know because I know I nothing. I don't. Like, I'm a fan of baseball, but I don't know, like, the intricacies of the game. Of like, oh, this person needs, you have to pitch a high... Yeah. For like a fastball no, for for a left-handed swing or something like I was like I don't know. No, that, like I I feel very smart when I like saw enough of like Alfonso Soriano on the Cubs to know, oh, if you pitch him down and away, he's going to swing away like a dipshit. Mm-hmm. Like that I was like, "Oh, I learned that just from watching him every day." But I can't honestly yeah. tell the difference between like a curveball and a slider and a cutter. Like there are people who know exactly what's what when they see the motion of a pitch. I'm not that advanced with that stuff. I can usually tell fastball versus, you know, off speed, but I couldn't tell you what type of off speed. So um, I just enjoy the game and collecting the cards. I don't care about becoming a professional scout or analyst. So. I'll just be like, ooh, ball game fun. That's 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 where my mindset is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Sammy Bodine knows this stuff. And that's all that really matters. Uh, but yeah, they have this Mr. Miyagi moment where he asks Bodine to close his eyes and visualize the glove and pitch. And he does, but he throws it and hits the window of the car that was just fixed instead. Because he didn't yeah, visualize well enough. It's established that he just gets when he's nervous. He doesn't gets wild. Yeah, he doesn't pitch well. Yeah, and he's making mistakes. Yeah, but they're basically trying to establish trying like, to this whole like down. magical ability of his. Like, if you close your eyes and concentrate, you'll still hit your mark. And right. It didn't happen in this scene, but the idea is that it's going to set up something probably for the end. Mm-hmm. So, you gotta have that magical moment. Um, but yeah, so he, flash forward, and he's in front of you know the actual suits, and he's like on the field at at the uh, Angels Stadium, which is evidently where they're doing tryouts during the middle of a actual season, 
um, which I don't think is something that typically happens. Yeah, he, like you said, he gets really nervous and he's throwing all kinds of wild pitches everywhere. Yeah, and everyone's making fun of him. Yeah, and they're like, oh, Virgil, you're screwed now. Right. Um, and then he goes out there, talks to him about sushi. Yeah. <laughs> to like... Well, he, he, uh, well, I should say Bodine expects, you know, Virgil to come up to be like, hey, what's wrong? Yeah, but, like, get your shit together, kid. And I'm, Yeah, Virgil I'm is just you. like, hey, where do you want to go for dinner tonight? And Bodine is like, huh? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, oh, I think you would like sushi. That's a very L.A. thing to do. And then he's like, okay. And then he goes back to pitching, but then he's still pitching wildly. Well, no, he's hitting... No, actually, what I, like, if I think what happens is he starts hitting his spots, and they're like, okay, bring a batter in. Oh, okay. And then he gets nervous again. Yeah, he gets... Okay. They bring in Dick Bortner, the home run leader of the Dick league. <laughs> which is a fake player. <laughs> that person does not exist. Um, but I just love the name Dick Bortner. Um, so he's really intimidated by Dick Bortner and he can't throw, a, um, anything that misses Bortner's bat. Bortner's like hitting him like nonstop and that's when he goes out again to the mound. Yeah, he goes out again. He's like, do you know what sushi is? Raw fish. <laughs> and then he walks, <laughs> yeah, then away. walks away. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it's like the funniest line in the movie that's <laughs> do you know trying sushi? at times to be a comedy. <laughs> you know what, yeah, you know what sushi is? Raw fish. <laughs> like and then walks off. Yeah, he doesn't, he like, doesn't say, hey, kid, whatever. Doesn't give him, like, a pep talk. No, he's just he's saying, just trying do you know to, like, I know, like, you know, yeah, trying to, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just ease the tension by changing the subject. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The movie definitely tries to be funny here at times, but it's just, like... Yeah, he, I mean, I don't know if this garbage is... Garbage jokes? Yeah, I don't know, because... He's always, Virgil's always trying to, like, crack jokes and just be very, I don't know, funny. He's, he's like, a jokester. I guess. But, you know, when he's, like, like, okay, we're going back to when he visits Bobby in the office. He's, like, throwing sunflower seeds at people. Like, hey, heads up. And throws seeds at people. Yeah, and then, like, he calls Bobby at the office and says he got her number off a bathroom wall. Yeah, and then, like, the just, secretary like, just around. says it. And the secretary says it so matter-of-factly, it just kind of, like, oh, ruins got, the joke. Yeah, oh, he said he got a bathroom wall. It's like, oh, you have a call for you? He said he got your number out of a bathroom wall. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, yeah. So I, but this is the actual, like, this is yeah. the one laugh that it actually got out of us. Right, because <laughs> we were like, okay, this is... <laughs> just his goofy-ass a... laugh afterwards. Right. <laughs> So now he's doing really well against Dick Bortner, um, and he's striking him out. And then Bobby's there with Gil and Tim Weaver, who we haven't talked about at all. I don't know exactly like what the manager he's... of the team. He, I he? think he's the general manager. Okay, but he isn't at the time because Gil promotes him to general manager. So I don't know what his previous position was within the Angels. But anyway, he's another suit. Mm-hmm. who is, like, the friend, but also kind of secret em- enemy of Virgil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, Gil's, like, all high and mighty, like, see, scouting doesn't work, this guy's crap. Um, and Tim's mad because Virgil went behind his back and didn't, you know, get this scouting work approved by him or whatever. Um, and now this prospect's doing really well. And Bobby, 
is going, yes. Yeah. Ah, yeah. But like, she says it in a weird way. Yeah, she's supposed to be giving like these really excited reactions to these great pitches. And instead she's like, woo. Yay. It's like it's like she's giving like line readings to the some you know someone yeah, else. It's it's as if this was shot at a different time. Like her scenes were shot yeah. separately and they were like, Okay, Lorraine Bracco. We didn't yeah. even say like Bobby is Lorraine Bracco. Yeah, we're okay. Coming and, off of an Oscar nomination for Goodfellas, by the way. Right. Like the and, year before. And they're like, act surprised yeah. <laughs> or happy. Get excited, this kid's doing really yeah. well. She's like, yeah. Woo. Yes. And then finally she's uh, like, oh, yes. Like she did yeah. one good, oh, yes. <laughs> but it has like, she has like dead eyes while she does it. Like the, the yeah, I wonder if she's just like, sign, I'm getting is fine. paid for this <laughs> yeah. dumb movie. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's just... A lot of the dialogue in this movie sounds like it's just shot at completely different times with no guidance from other actors. Like, you know, how normally when you shoot a movie, you have the other actor or someone running lines with you so you have something to bounce off and react to. This is basically just people reciting words on a script to emptiness. Mm -hmm. And then it's pieced together in the editing room. A lot of people don't feel like they're in the same space and, you know... They don't occupy the same frame most of the time. And so you have like a shot of Edward James almost staring and saying his line. And then you have like a completely unrelated inflection by the person who's responding to him. And it just doesn't match up. Just very weird construction overall. Um, but Dick Bortner gets his ass handed to him by Sammy Bodine. And Sammy Bodine is now on the team. Yes. Uh, and then you go into this scene where he is announced to the press by this new G, uh, new owner, Gil Lawrence. Um, and they pull this fun little stunt where they descend him from the heavens. They bring like fog machines and he's like this on like strings so and ropes. This and he's team, coming down from the scene. ceiling to announce this new angel player. Right. So... It's like, please, everyone, welcome Sammy Bodine. And then he's being... He's, like, awkwardly... Projected. Yeah, he's awkwardly hanging from these wires from the ceiling. And everyone's clapping. And he's, he just looks very uncomfortable, like, the entire movie. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Until, like, the very, very end, I guess. And he just comes down on these wires. He doesn't even do anything. He's just hanging there. Yeah. And then he's just being slowly brought down to the ground on these wires. And then, you know, smoke is all around. Yeah. There was like a weird entrance. He couldn't just come down a stairway. I know. Yeah, I think it, I think it was meant to sort of, one, be jokey. Like a like, spectacle I think it was meant to be something of a, a, a comedy piece. But yeah, also to be like a spectacle, like in show Gil Lawrence as this type of character like showman yeah because he's we don't get to know that you know like there's no setup for this not really you just see that he owns like a really giant mansion that looks like a castle yeah it again it's out of nowhere and it just sort of happens and then it's almost like you know it's not talked about again it's just weird little snippets of something um but then the announcement is that he's going to be starting for the angels 
like in a week on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, what, less than whatever, a week. Yeah, whatever day Saturday is in relation to that press release, um, he's starting. He's not going to the minors. He's coming in with no professional experience, no minor league experience, going right into a game in the majors. And then there's like a big to-do, and Virgil and Tim don't want that, and Bobby doesn't want that because they want him to be seasoned in the minors. They want him to get actual professional experience at a lower-level, lower-stakes environment, which makes sense. That's how everyone should be doing it, mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, but yeah. That's the decision, and so we got that extra little bit of conflict. Uh, the players resent it. They're in the locker room talking about how this kid isn't ready and how it's not fair that he's not paying his dues like they did in the minors and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and he's in the other room listening to all this. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, Virgil is offered a new role as the assistant to Jim, uh, assistant to the general manager, which would be Tim. $60,000 a year for three years guaranteed. Um, I mean, so he's good. no longer a scout. He has like this guaranteed job, Assistant. which means yeah. he could be able to marry Bobby. Right, because now he's Evidently making money. That, yeah, which apparently was you know, a factor in his own mind, at least. Yeah, they, they don't even say how long they've been together either. So no. That's... They don't have a discussion about the relationship hardly at all except for when they are walking in that empty uh, highway they do have like a little stupid fight mm-hmm. at one point they have a very brief fight and then they hear baseball and it's all over <laughs> and everything's good again um so yeah so all this kind of whirlwind stuff happens and so yeah flash forward and he's basically at the game and yeah, I mean, the first yeah, inning, he's doing game. not a good job. He's yep. messing up. Everyone's the crowd's, a partner. Everyone. Every, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> crowd's booing him. Yeah. No one likes him. The owner wants him pulled yep. from the game in the first inning, sees the whole thing as an abject failure. Uh, Virgil's dead to him. He's fired, whatever. Yeah, Even Virgil... though he can't be fired because he right. has a three-year guarantee, so he still quits. Just out of spite. You know, this typical shit you see in movies. Right. Uh, you can't fire me, I quit. Bullshit. Yeah, Lorraine Bracco was like, I think I'm going to fire myself. Everyone's quitting. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and um, and then Tim yeah, and was then Tim is going supposed to, to call. Yeah, he's supposed to call the dugout to be like, take him out. Take him out. But Tim actually calls the dugout and says, hey... You can put him in the next inning, but if he messes up a couple, like if he, if, if two, anyone reaches second, pull him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If. <laughs> yeah. If anyone reaches second base in the second inning, pull him. Um, which is not what the ownership wanted, but. Yeah, the owner just wanted him out immediately. Yeah. But Virgil got to Tim. But once it gets to the second, to senses yeah, to the second inning, head. he comes back on the mound, and then owner is like, "What the hell." And then, you know, Virgil is all of a sudden down in the field, dressed up as a catcher. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, how did this even, how did they allow this? Well, okay. Like, so what type, this is. <laughs> here, here's how this happened. So, Virgil is an ex-baseball player, right? They yeah. made a big deal about him being an ex-baseball player who can no longer play. 
He can do everything, but he can't run because it makes him dizzy, supposedly. That's what we learned halfway through. They make a big deal of it, making it seem like it's some big reveal. And it's not a big deal at all. Does not come into play. I thought when he was a catcher that he might have to run somewhere and, like, be dizzy and fall down and ruin the kid's chances or have some sort of, like, relation to this. Mm -hmm. Why mention it so much if it's not actually going to play a factor in the plot? But they did. Um... So anyway, he's down there to talk to the kid in between innings. He's not allowed in the dugout, but the catcher is going to the bathroom. Yeah. And so did off screen, his... I guess they have some sort of a yeah, Did they talk, have his, it, and they his switch, uniform? Or yeah, what? they switch freaking places, and he's out there um, for a half inning Like, as this the is catcher. another naked gun. <laughs> yeah, it's like another naked gun reference. <laughs> I know. And they did have like an opera-like singer singing the national anthem, but you never saw him. You just kind of like, right. Heard him you in just the see the team singing along with him. Yeah, yeah. It could have been Enrico. Yeah, Palazzo. Um. So yeah, he's he's there dressed up as a you know not dressed up as a catcher. He's in the catcher's uniform mm-hmm. as the catcher, and so he goes out to the mound and and lets Bodine know that he's there, and he's like, remember, you know what happened when i scouted you like close your eyes and remember that time like yeah. which was a week ago i don't right. know yeah, like, i remember two one to two weeks ago yeah when i scouted you like think about those times and it's just so weird like like you said like nobody notices obviously bodine does like immediately when he hears the voice but like the umpire doesn't notice none of the royals batters who are the opposing players in this game um, they should know what the regular catcher actually looks like. And so when they're coming up to bat, they're like, who the fuck is this? Like, right. nobody says anything. They could have had, I don't know. So yeah, he gives him the pep talk, and he's magical again. And then, yeah, Bodine's like, do you want me to close my eyes? He's like, no, no, let's not do that ever again. Mm-hmm. So that was like the result of the Mr. Miyagi moment. So yeah, that means that Virgil gets his, you know professional baseball experience that he never got to have because of his injury and then Bodina's success at least for this one particular half inning yeah um well i mean uh, he did very well because at the end of the movie he tells the owner i want a million dollars a year for six years at least yeah this unknown commodity who pitched (laughs) one good game right six year guaranteed contract at a million dollars per yeah, even if I have injuries, I want this million-dollar contract. So, um, long way from Idaho. <laughs> and then, yeah, Bobby and Virgil, who have both quit their jobs, evidently, you know, did not get them back after Bodine regained his composure. They just drive off into the sunset and yeah, move you over. Yeah. <laughs> just a whole bunch of nothing. We talked about it as if stuff happened, but nothing really happened. It was um, a movie that was made. The baseball action wasn't, like, worthwhile either. It's such weird perspectives. It's just sort of like everything else where it just was not put together very well. It's a lot of, almost all of the pitching shots, the camera is the catcher. So you have the pitcher throwing it directly at your face. And so you don't really get a good... I don't know, that's not a very good perspective in anything other than baseball video games where you're, you know, trying to be the batter and you need to see what's coming at you that way. Um, 
Yeah, it was just boring. And, like, during, like, that first inning, the entire, like, first inning where he's doing terribly, there's mm-hmm. no music at all. It's just the crowd noise and the boos and, like, you know, the... Yeah. And then the the, the sappy music comes in. And the second inning after, you know, um, Virgil gives his I'm going to hypnotize you speech. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, the score was done by David Newman. That's our third movie of his. Um... Uh. Uh, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, and I forget the second one already. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna. Uh, he's he's done a lot. In yeah, yeah, he's he's the, the uh, ever present. He did other people's money. Oh, that's Zealand. what it was. Yeah, the most basic music for the most basic movie. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cast and crew that made this. Um, there honestly weren't a whole lot of cast members that are worth mentioning. There's a massive cast, but a lot of them went on to do nothing else, or a lot of people did, like, minor bit parts, or a couple of them we might see in future 1991 movies, so I'm not going to really mention them too much. Edward James Olmos, well, we'll talk about um, director first, sorry. Robert M. Young has some pedigree to him, just maybe not so much in the fictional film realm. Uh, He was a can festival golden camera award winner for his movie alambrista in 1977 uh he also won the grand prize at sundance for his documentary children of fate life and death in a sicilian family so he's had a lot of good success in the documentary world mm-hmm. um but it that didn't really carry over here the cinematography wasn't terrible but just like the editing and construction of the movie was just god awful um the writers are all over the place. We have David Himmelstein, who did Power. He did Village of the Damned. He did Bad Company, which was that Anthony Hopkins, Chris Rock movie that I forgot existed. Um, Thomas Michael Donnelly did Quicksilver and Defiance. Larry Ferguson is probably the most accomplished in terms of box office hits. He did Highlander, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Hunt for Red October, Alien, Alien 3, and then the Rollerball movie in 2002, the remake. Um, I don't know who took on what role for this but mm-hmm. it did not three guys writing this movie it took three guys that did not i don't know didn't mesh um but yeah we got edward james almost i don't know if this was like a pet project of his or something and he just really wanted to do a baseball movie i just don't know why these people are involved in this um oscar nominated for uh stand and deliver he also won the independent spirit award for that same movie um emmy winner for miami vice Longtime cast member on Miami Vice. Um, and then uh, he's in Blade Runner, Selena, Battlestar Galactica for a long time. And he's also married to his co star, Lorraine Bracco, uh, from 1994 to 2002. This is probably where they first met. Yeah. Um, like I said, Lorraine Bracco coming off of Goodfellas. Four Emmy nominations for The Sopranos, but she also has a Razzie nomination for Medicine Man. And Traces of Red, I both in the same year. Uh, I don't know Traces of Red. Me neither. But somehow she avoided the Razzie for this. Um, right. It's also in the 1991 movie Switch. Uh, also, you may know her from Hackers or a recurring uh, uh, recurring role in Rizzoli and Isles. <laughs> 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 so. I did not know she was in that show. No, but she, I don't she know plays much one of the Rizzolis. Rizzoli. Oh, really? She plays a Rizzoli. 
I don't know. I, I don't know which one, so. but she plays one of them. Not the main one, obviously, but uh, I know maybe her from like a mom or a sister. I don't know what what role she plays. She was also in um, Radio Flyer, which mm. I love that movie. She was like the mom in Radio Flyer. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I haven't seen Radio Flyer. Um, Jeff Corbett with Sammy Bodine. He really hasn't done a whole lot that I could really, you know, that people would remember. He's just in a bunch of like smaller roles or TV guest spots. So this is like his big one thing. And then that was it. Tim Weaver, who we barely talked about, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Law and Order, Criminal Intent uh, for several years. Homeland, he played the vice president. Um, Jamie Sheridan. Jamie Sheridan, yes. What okay. did I say? You said t- his, his. Oh, I just said his Tim character Ray. name, but not yeah. his actor name. Yeah, his actor name. Yeah, James. sorry. Jamie Sheridan. Uh, he's also in uh, two more 1991 movies. One of them is not on our list Murder in High Places. Um, just couldn't find a copy of it that's available to watch, so maybe at some point they'll get added in. He's also in All I Want for Christmas, so we can talk about mm. him more in a little bit then. Um, okay. I want to talk about Felton Perry, who is the manager of the Angels. He was in the dugout, you know. Um, he didn't have a whole lot of lines, but... Uh, yeah, he's just like, okay, kid, let me see you pitch. Yeah, he, he was there. <laughs> okay, now you're signed <laughs> to yeah. the team. So, yeah, he's pretty good now. Um, anyway, yeah, Felton Perry, he's been in all kinds of different stuff. He's been in Night Called Nurses, the cult classic movie. Um, he was Dirty Harry's partner in the sequel Magnum Force. Uh, he's been in all three of the Robocop movies, the original. He's only one of five actors to appear in all three of those movies hmm. uh he's also a regular in the tv series hooperman do you remember hooperman no i think it was around like 94 95 okay uh starring john ritter oh it lasted okay. for about 42 episodes or so uh he played some sort of a detective in that so uh last thing i want to mention here in terms of uh Normal actors is Terry Kinney, who played Gil Lawrence. I mentioned he's uh, from uh, Oz, McManus. He's also in Billions, The Firm, Sleepers, Devil in a Blue Dress. He'll be in the 1991 movie Queen's Logic. Um, something I didn't know, but probably should have. He was a co-founder of the Seven Wolf Theater. Did oh, you know really? That? No. Yeah, he co-founded Seven Wolf with Gary Sinise and Jeff Perry. He's, you know, those three together. I've the never theater. been to Steppenwolf, no. even though we live in the city that Steppenwolf Theater is in. Yeah, so obviously he's been in tons of stuff, um, mostly at Steppenwolf, but he was also a Tony-nominated actor for Grapes of Wrath, uh, which did appear on TV in 1991 through TV American Playhouse on PBS. So... Yeah, it was just a weird little thing. Like, also, I didn't know McManus was a founder of Steppenwolf. Yeah, he was also married to Elizabeth Perkins. Yes, he was. <laughs> so going back to... Divorced uh, by this time. You're right. To her. Going back to another 1991 movie. Yes. Uh, and then in terms of like the baseball stuff, um, so we got Ken, Ken Medlock was one of the players in here. He's like, I just found it fascinating. Like all of the baseball related credits that he was in, if I can mm. list them all off, just <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. So he played in AAA in Mexico, not any sort of like minor league system, uh, but he's probably best known for being like one of the people in Moneyball who gave uh, Brad Pitt's character, you know, a lot of shit during one of the meetings. Okay. Um, but yeah, these are all the baseball related things. I just wrote down the names of the projects. Uh, the Comebacks, The Shield, 
Bad New Bears, Bad News Bears, Clubhouse, Seventh Heaven, Major League Back to the Miners, Major League Two, Living and Working in Space, The Countdown Has Begun, Mr. Baseball, The CBS School Break Special, ABC After School Specials, Brewster's Millions, and Mirror Mirror, all those he either played a baseball player or an umpire. So he's sort of like been typecast. Um, and then real life uh, minor league player in the, uh, the States, Hank Robinson, same type of thing. If I listed all of his, it would be a mile long. We'd be here for like a half hour. He pretty much only plays umpires or cops. Um, but yeah, the umpire in the major league sequence, Hank Robinson, pretty much only plays umpires. Uh, and then all of the players in those games, the Angels and the Royals players, they're all real baseball the players. The real player, players? But none of them were active in 1991. Ah, okay. They had all stopped playing before this movie uh, was made. So they weren't current players, except for maybe one. Uh, Steve Ontiveros is listed in the credits. IMDB associates him with a uh, pitcher for the A's, Phillies, and Mariners who would have been active technically, but would have been injured at the time. But there's another Steve Ontiveros who was born 10 years earlier, who was an infielder for the Giants and Cubs. And I think that's who actually was in the movie. Oh, okay. So, if you out there happen to know the answer, which which Steve Ontiveros was it? Let us know. On to true crime and pop culture. Oh, sorry. I should mention there's no awards to... (laughs) 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 There, There are no awards to mention on this one. On to true crime and pop culture. All right, well, so this movie was released the same day as uh, Kiss Before Dying, which was April 26, 1991. Not a great week for that movie. Yeah, that week was, uh, I was thinking, like, was April a really bad month for movies in that time period in 91? And then I did find some stuff out, some stuff about Edward James Olmos that some... Well, I'm not going to talk about it, but I did find some sexual assault accusations. I was like, is everyone? I'm like, I'm sick and tired of finding stuff out every week. So I did find a couple things, but I I tried to like delve into it. And then, I mean, what I saw was on Wikipedia and I was like, "Mm, I don't want to get into it. Okay. So just know that it's out there. If you want to learn more, you can. If you want to know about the shenanigans of Edward James Olmos, you can go on Wikipedia. (laughs) Music-wise, we already talked about on our episode for Kiss Before Dying what the top songs were, but to refresh your memory was Mm -hmm. Amy Grant's Baby Baby. Okay. And the Chesney Hawks song. Okay. The one and only. Yeah. But I started looking up other stuff. I did... like what the top album was for that time in april of 1991 and it was mariah carey's debut album that was released in march of 1991 and it was on the charts for 12 weeks all the way up until may so march to may mariah carey's debut album was number one on billboard wow did you own it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I have it on tape. I did not. I never oh, it. yeah. 
And then I also looked up a list of Billboard top songs, which I'm going to try and remember to do in the future because these are, quote, modern rock, which was probably what alternative was considered before they... The fun music. Yeah, before they came up with the term alternative music. Sure. So for this week, the top modern rock song was Depeche Mode's Enjoy the Silence. Okay. And I also looked up a couple of songs, or not songs, a couple of albums that were released in April of 91. There were a bunch, but I'm only going to talk about two, because these two stuck out to me. There was more, but I don't want to get into it. Yeah, Yeah, if we have another April release, I'll talk about two more, maybe. The first one is the fifth studio album of by Violent Femmes called Why Do Birds Sing? It was released April 30th, 1991, and that had the song American Music on it. Okay. Do you know that song? Not by name, I don't. Nope. I'm, I'm sure not if gonna, I heard it. I'm not going to sing it. That's But fine. you will know what it I'm is. I'm sure I would. <laughs> I, you, know, you know, we talked about this on the podcast. I just don't know things by name most of the time. You know the song, but I'm, I'm sure not going to sing it. That's fine. And the next <laughs> album that was released in April 91, which caught my eye and I thought was interesting, was um, Alana, Alanis Morissette's debut album. Hmm. It was April 91, but it was MCA Records Canada released this album, and it was in Canada only. I was going to ask, did it ever hit the States? But probably, no. At least not at that year mm. what she had she was done off of like you can't do that on television by that point right she was like yeah transitioning from tv yeah to music she was i was reading a little bit about this album and it was a dance pop album which is what i do not know her as right <laughs> and she was known as the tiffany or the debbie gibson of canada around that time yeah i remember hearing about that when like jagged little pill came out that she had like that pop history to her that we never we never saw we never got to experience yeah Yeah. if we can find like a youtube video of like one of those songs then we'll put it on the website yeah and then uh, some of the top singles on that album which i haven't listened to any of this was the first single was called too hot Next one was called Walk Away and then Feel Your Love. Those were all on the top 40 of that year in Canada. And then now TV-wise, so I know that you mentioned maybe in the last episode that we went to your parents' house yeah, and got some TV guides. And we found a TV, a TV guide for April 27th to May 3rd of 1991. The day day after this movie. The day came after out. this movie came yeah. out, but it was talking about the dinosaurs premiere, which which, w- which premiered on April twenty sixth, yeah. which is the day this movie was released. And I just want to comment on the cover is Patrick Bergen, yeah, as Robin Hood. Robin Hood, yeah. So I don't know. We we're gonna have to <laughs> yeah, that's on like, the list. Scan <laughs> scan this. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was funny. There's a big picture of dinosaurs and then a small picture of Patrick Bergen. Mm-hmm. The... And Magic Johnson, but yeah, but he's I, not I, in a movie I was like, why time. out of all these people in the whole world, <laughs> Patrick Bergen? Because it was playing on. It was probably playing on HBO or something that week. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, because it just says what's coming up in May. So this was, that movie was probably coming up in May of 91. So I'm just going to read, like, some of the stuff that I found in here was interesting and I didn't know much about. So I'm just going to read a few paragraphs because this is like a five to six page thing. Yeah. So starting off as unlikely as a sitcom about a dinosaur family sounds, one thing the series has in its favor is its ingenious creator, the late Jim Henson, who died in 1990. I didn't know that he died in 1990. Yeah, I was in third grade. I, I, I thought he died when, like, we were in high school or something. No, I remember clearly being in elementary school hearing about it. Oh, okay. I, I, know, he, I know he died. I didn't know he died this soon. Yeah. So this concept for the series was an idea that Henson began tossing around four years ago, which was in 1987. Okay. Says his son, Brian Henson, who is a co-executive producer of Dinosaurs. Also the voice of Hoggle in the Labyrinth. Ah, and he is also a chief puppeteer for the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Yeah. And this is the first production that the company Jim Henson Productions has developed without Jim Jim Henson. Uh, The technology used in this live action series was crazy, which I started reading about. And it started out with um, Jim Henson Productions and Michael Jacobs Productions. They were in association with Walt Disney Television utilizing state-of-the-art puppetry and electronics and all of it was shot in movie quality 35 millimeter film rather than on videotape Hmm. and this is a quote from brian henson saying we're pushing every element of the production to its limit and what we're getting is something quite unparalleled in the industry it's a quantum leap from ninja turtles which was a quantum leap from the things that came before it in terms of technology alone, this show could not have been done five years ago. Ads executive producer Michael Jacobs. He was also the producer for My Two Dads. Hmm, okay. One of, <laughs> one of the best theme songs ever. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, also a very good show. It might have been done Muppet style, but fantasy takes on another level when it happens in a genuinely believable world. So this this is all quotes from Jacobs and Henson, and then they were talking about Elf. They said, when my two small children watched Elf, I didn't want them to know there was a hand in his head. Mm. So they made these creatures, or dinosaurs, which average about seven to nine feet tall and are about four to five feet wide. Other talented technicians coordinated electronic signals to alter the facial expressions via a process called audio animatronics which actors provide the voices and such high-tech wizardry doesn't come cheap it was estimated construction costs for the dinosaurs built at jim henson's productions creature shop in london was 2.5 million dollars wow and the first episode reportedly cost at least twice that much making the show one of the most expensive half hours on TV. Well, and it, yeah, it didn't last very long either, but it was It still... was only like four seasons, but I mean, yeah. 
but it was still, I mean, a resounding success critically, I would say. Yeah, they said that this was ordered for, uh, after the pilot was aired, they ordered it for 13 more episodes. And then there's like another little article within this article about the rise of how dinosaurs have become are becoming popular which i thought oh, just was, in general yeah not the tv show but just the concept yeah of just dinosaurs. the concept of dinosaurs which is true because they talk about you know the lost world and then they talk about jurassic park the book oh yeah because the, movie, the movie hasn't been out away. yet yeah. it, that came out in 93 i thought that was interesting yeah. <laughs> trying to think what land before time was that like Couple years yeah, that was that. like in yeah late eighties. Yeah. So yeah, there's like a little thing talking about how dinosaurs are cool. Yeah. <laughs> on to rankings and ratings. On your one to five star scale, where would you put talent for the game? Uh, I mean, I'm gonna give this a one. Okay, <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of. Yeah, it's like. On my zero to four star scale, I think I'm going to give it a half star. Okay. <laughs> Which I think is probably the same thing I gave A Kiss Before Dying. Yeah, so this week we this had week some bad so duds. <laughs> we'll have to look and see. Like this movie, yeah, I mean, well, it's on the box office. Number 211 is it's standing in the box office. Right. I mean, I'm... Out of less than 250. I'm scared to see what like 250 is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously there's hundreds that weren't even in the box yeah, office yeah. that will probably be better than this yeah this was just boring yeah so and it's exactly what a lifetime or hallmark movie would be yeah like the movies that you would see on lifetime now are like this yeah absolutely just emptiness but at least it was quick it was like a 90 yeah, it was an hour and a half. I was like, okay, thank God for that. Like, maybe it needed some extra time to sort of actually introduce these characters and stuff. I mean, I would... I don't think it would have helped. I would watch this over Kiss Before Dying, though. Boy, I don't know. That's going to be interesting to... Okay, so would you watch it again, just generally? No, no but if yeah. I had to choose between this... If you had to choose between that... And a Kiss Before Dying, I am choosing this at least i would uh, laugh and kind of make fun of it you know i feel like i could make fun of kiss before dying more and you have like the fun like grotesque death scenes in that that you can like i just you know? that movie really it made me i think because with the kiss before dying that genre i like a lot and i was very excited to see it and then it really disappointed me and made me so angry that i'm <laughs> like i will never watch this again i gotcha yeah, I think we're just going to be reversed on that. Yeah. Well, uh, but if you out there want to watch Talent for the Game, as of this recording in June 2021, it's available on Amazon Prime, Digital Rental, VHS, or DVD. As always, check your local listings. As for us, you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991moviewrewind at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Just search 1991 Movie Rewind or go to 1991MovieRewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes, the uh, full list of rankings and ratings, and all kinds of additional stuff. Next week, we'll be watching Europa, which is on HBO Max, Criterion Channel, Canopy, VHS, and DVD. We will see you then. Thanks. Thanks.